it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, June 6th. 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you all here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the show. We also have the podcast available for free on demand after the show each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. It's all right there, including that on-demand, no-charge-to-you podcast. Welcome to our newcomers in particular, Glad you're checking us out. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. That's part of my bio in addition to hosting this show. Over on the TV side at Fox, I'll be joining Special Report tonight, part of the panel there with Brett Baer and company. That is in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern on FNC, probably around 645 Eastern this evening. On the radio, here's the lineup today. Mark Thiessen. Washington Post columnist, former presidential speechwriter, Fox News contributor. He's going to be here later on in the hour. Congressman Steve Scalise of Louisiana joins us in our next hour. And in our final hour, Howie Kurtz will be here on the program to talk about President Biden finally agreeing to an interview. He hasn't done one in four months. He has not done an interview. Let me repeat that. The president of the United States has not done an interview Amid all of these crises in four months, he's answered stray questions here or there. He'll talk to the press sometimes, but a sustained one-on-one sit-down with pushback and follow-ups, you know, an interview. Four months. And guess who will finally have the honors? Democratic strategist and part-time comedian Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, that'll be a barn burner, I'm sure. That's scheduled for Wednesday. We'll get Howie's reaction to that. Plus, the Washington Post basically burned itself to the ground over the weekend on Twitter. Journalists fighting, lobbing insults and personal attacks at each other. It was quite a scene. We'll tell you about that and get Howie's reaction. That's all coming up later on the show today. Plus, in our next hour, our middle hour of three, I have quite a lot to say about a situation that's playing out in New York City where you have elected political officials, politicians, people with government power, using that government power, using their government positions to try to enforce censorship on an organization because they are daring to invite Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to speak in Manhattan. And these Democrats who are LGBTQ community members, they've decided, well, because it's near a place that matters to them and in a neighborhood that is a gay neighborhood. And because it's during Pride Month, that cannot be allowed to happen. And they're not just saying we disagree, we're going to protest. They are urging a private company to violate or break a private contract with a private organization to disrupt a private event. It is extremely inappropriate. 
And these Democrats are doing it in the name of the LGBTQ community, supposedly. Well, I have some thoughts on that. As a member, I think I qualify as a member of the community. I have some thoughts. Suffice it to say, they don't speak for me. They don't speak for many of us. That's coming up in our next hour. We begin today, though, on crime. I would like for you to think about a sequence of events. We know that the squad sort of left wing elements of the Democratic Party are lax on crime, soft on crime, arguably in some cases pro-crime, certainly pro-criminal. And in far too many cases, aggressively anti-police. And I think the zenith of the anti-police moment in the Democratic Party was the riots in 2020 over the summer. We all lived through that. We remember it. It was scary. And that happened to coincide with an election season. So, of course, you had the left wing of the party doing its thing. They've elected DAs in some of these major cities. Uh, More on that coming up here in just a moment. Who have endeavored to coddle criminals, and that's exactly what they've done over and over again as things get more dangerous and more deadly in those jurisdictions. But you also had Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at that point running together as the Democratic ticket over the summer of 2020, who were at least willing to blow kisses and play footsie with the defund the police movement. The way they tell the story now, especially Biden, should make sense. He wrote that very harsh crime bill in the 90s that he then pretended, oh, who's that guy? Never heard of him. No, for political reasons, as he was trying to win the nomination, which then he did, and then win the election by keeping his base on side, he was absolutely playing into the defund the police madness. He was asked, would he be willing to redirect funding away from the police to other community programs? which is one of the actual definitions of the defund the police phenomenon. You have some of the really radical people saying, no, no, we actually mean defund. That was AOC. Defund means defund. The police lose their funding. They want to abolish police. They want to abolish prisons. That's crazy, but that's what they believe. You have other people on the left who don't want to go quite that crazy because they don't want to lose every election in America. They said, no, what we really mean by defund the police is decrease funding for police and redirect some of the funding elsewhere. Joe Biden was asked about that, and he endorsed it in an interview. While he's running for president, he said he supported that, a version of defund the police. Kamala Harris, of course, famously had her staff out there and from her personal Twitter account also tweeted support for the organization in Minneapolis that was bailing violent rioters and other criminals out of jail. And she urged people to donate to that bail fund. Turned out some very dangerous, violent people benefited from that bail fund. So this idea, this notion now that, oh, no, that's we were never doing that. We are always pro-police. We love the police. And Kamala, of course, was a cop. Throw people in prison for what? Marijuana use and stuff. But that was what helped her build a brand when it was safe to do so politically. Then she had to move on to the defund the police flirtations along with Joe Biden, because that's what the political moment required. And now the political moment now 
again, requires them to be pro-police. And they're out there saying, oh, it's a Republican right-wing smear that we want to defund the police in this party. We want to increase police funding. We, we support our law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. That's the new rhetoric from this crowd. They also try to say that the Republicans were the defund the police party. Remember that one? That was a fun brainchild of someone. They sent Circle back out there to try that one. It didn't really work. No, it's just shameless. The reason I give you that brief recent history lesson is I want to juxtapose, uh, juxtapose rather the current talking points of the Biden administration on supporting the police and tough on crime and increasing police funding with some of their actual actions. Jonathan Turley is a law professor at George Washington University, sort of like a traditionalist Democrat who you can tell is increasingly bothered by the illiberalism and extremism of his own political party or movement. Here's a headline of a post that he wrote on his website. I read this yesterday. New York attorneys accused of firebombing police car given generous plea deal. It's the case of attorneys who are going to be disbarred, but they were trained attorneys Colin Ford Mattis and Aruj Rahman accused of throwing Molotov cocktails into a police vehicle in New York City during all of the 2020 insanity. They were facing domestic terrorism charges and the possibility of 30 years in jail. But this week, the Biden administration agreed to a massive reduction of the charges in a plea agreement that will likely result in only a couple years of jail time. What is particularly bizarre, writes Turley, is that the plea agreement reduces an earlier plea agreement on a more serious offense. The plea deal by the Biden-Garland Justice Department is a breathtaking reduction in the charges and expected sentencing of the two lawyers. Turley writes later on, notably, Rachman and Mattis pleaded guilty last year to one count of possessing and making an explosive device, which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. Now, however, they will be allowed to withdraw the earlier plea and instead plead guilty to conspiring to assemble the Molokov uh, cocktail and damage the New York City Department patrol call, uh, patrol car, rather. Turley says this is a nosebleed of a drop in the severity and punishment for this violent attack. It is a sharp contrast to the harsh position taken by the Biden Justice Department on many of those accused of rioting on January 6th. Conspiring to assemble the Molotov cocktail and damage the NYPD car does not quite capture what these two attorneys did during the violent riot in New York. Rockman was caught on video throwing the firebomb and then fleeing the scene. Mattis was accused of having a store of firebombs in his vehicle and was videotaped as he attempted to hand them out to other rioters to fuel further violence. Rahman later was unapologetic, declaring to reporters, quote, the only way they hear us is through violence. Jonathan Turley says this does not seem like the type of situation or the type of suspects who would nor ordinarily garner deep sympathy from prosecutors. Yet, 
the Biden administration walked back the charges, unraveled an earlier plea to a lesser offense now, and told the court that the earlier charges would have resulted in excessive sentencing for these attorneys. Instead, they are supporting a maximum sentence of five years with a recommendation between 18 to 24 months imprisonment. This pair will now likely be given sentences closer to tax fraud than terrorism. Now, I don't have a strong opinion of whether or not these two deserve to spend decades in prison for firebombing a cop car and having ultimate, you know, multiple explosive devices that they created and were handing out to people to fuel a violent riot. I think that's a very serious string of offenses. 18 to 24 months doesn't really seem like justice, but that is what the Biden administration intervened to give these people who are a cause celeb on the left and within the left wing. These are left-wing radical attorneys with a bunch of friends in the left-wing media and left-wing activism circles, the very people that the Biden administration apparently governs for. They govern for the hard left in this country, not for the rest of us. So they can talk all they want about being pro-police and how they're getting smeared for defund the police. Well, here are the firebomb the police people that they are engineering a special sweetheart deal to get them out of prison a lot sooner. Even willing to claw back something that they had already pleaded guilty to in this violent rampage that they were a part of. So, again, their words over at the White House might say, we are for increasing funding to the police. We were never for defunding the police. That's just a smear job from the right wing or whatever. It's another Fox News lie. Well, actions speak louder than words. The words change, right? The words and actions have changed as the political winds have blown. These winds are now blowing in a way that makes previous rhetoric politically dangerous for the Democrats. So they're scrambling to pretend like it didn't happen and sort of airbrush the history. And then behind the scenes, the Biden Justice Department is doing this. Cutting deals, special favors, lower sentence for not just the defund the police crowd, but the firebomb the police crowd. Then I mentioned some of these left wing prosecutors. There's an update in Los Angeles. There's a recall election tomorrow in San Francisco. And there's a wild insulting excuse for a big gang related shootout in Philadelphia all presided over by district attorneys who are arguably pro-crime, certainly soft on crime. Those updates, boom, 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 when we come back. We're just getting started. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. As we continue our discussion of crime and weak-on crime politicians, you've got district attorneys in charge of actually prosecuting crimes who aren't really interested in doing that job in a lot of major cities in this country, some of them very prominent. 
One of them is Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. There was a horrible shooting over the weekend, I think gang-related. A bunch of people shot. His reaction was to tweet angrily about the NRA and NRA lobbyists and NRA donors demanding gun control, which is just such an abdication, such a transparent effort at blame shift. This is the guy in charge of prosecuting crimes who doesn't really like to do that very much. In fact, in 2014, not long ago, eight years ago, in the city of Philadelphia, your chance of getting convicted of illegal possession of a firearm was 69 percent. That was the conviction rate, 69 percent. As of 2019, it had fallen to 49 percent and dropping. That's a 20-point drop. It's not a coincidence. The police commissioner in Philadelphia said that the city's criminal justice system has become, quote, a revolving door for repeat gun offenders who have little reason to fear the consequences of being caught. I wonder why. It's not the NRA or their lobbyists or their donors. It's Larry Krasner and the people who think like him. Not enforcing the laws sufficiently at all that are already on the book, but they want to blame everyone else. Pass new laws. What, that they also won't enforce? That's in Philly. Out in Los Angeles, our colleague Bill Malugin posted a thread over the weekend on Twitter, which was very disturbing, a video of a young mother with her child in a stroller in Los Angeles, and a car swerves, it looks like, in order to hit them. And the woman gets hit by this car and flies up into the air. And she immediately, thank God, she's okay. She gets up to check on her baby, who, thank God, was also okay. But this car deliberately ran them down. And it was a hit and run, and this car went running, speeding off, and then eventually crashed as well. It was a 16-year-old driver who was sentenced to five to seven months in juvie camp, which George Cascone, Cascone, the left-wing DA out there, called an appropriate resolution. This 16-year-old was already on probation and violating it, having spiked the drink of a girl in high school, a teenager, in 2019. She was hospitalized after she was poisoned. That's that criminal's history. Six months in juvie camp, and the woman is now speaking out. She's outraged about the decision, about the sentencing, and saying this DA hasn't even checked in on her and how she's doing and her kid, and that violent attack. And his fellow left-winger up in San Francisco, Chesa Boudin, up for a recall tomorrow in SF. All eyes on that race, too. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, we were a little bit rushed in that last segment, so let me just read to you the full statement from this victim. A young mother run over by the 16-year-old who was already on probation for spiking the drink of a girl at his high school or a teenager, a fellow teenager. So he's on probation, violating that probation, 
if you watch the video, which I retweeted, it's horrifying. It's almost miraculous, I would say, that mother and child were unharmed. It looks like the car swerves deliberately to hit them. Here you've got two disturbing crimes against women committed by age 16 by this person. And six months in juvie camp is what George Gascon, the left-wing DA in Los Angeles, decided would be appropriate for this violation of probation and a violent hit-and-run. And Gascon came out and pushed back on things and saying that everything was fine and this was appropriate. Gascon's office admitted that the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department was not involved in the decision on the sentencing. So they put out a wrong statement defending their bad decisions and blaming the cops who had nothing to do with it that eventually got called out on it and admitted, oh, yeah, I guess they weren't consulted after all. So here's what the mother said in a statement to Fox News. This is, again, relayed by Bill Malugin, our colleague, yesterday. Quote, someone with a criminal record tried to kill me and my son. And George Gascon thinks that five months of camp is a sufficient punishment. Gascon's office took the time to falsely comment on my case, but has taken no time to ask how we are doing. That's because he doesn't care. Gascon and his staff are highlighting their incompetence and their complete disregard for victims. End quote. Which is pretty scathing, but also correct. And I'm actually like scrolling back up and watching the clip again. It is caught on camera, on a security camera. It is hard to watch. And we should be very thankful that neither of the victims were seriously killed or seriously hurt or killed. Because either one of those outcomes looks likely just from the footage itself. I also mentioned at the very end of that segment that there's the recall election up in San Francisco tomorrow. Chesa Boudin, the DA who's cut from the exact same cloth as the other men that I was just mentioning. Krasner, Gascon, Boudin. Boudin, the scion of a famous domestic terrorist family. And he's taken those sensibilities onto the job, and you've got San Francisco becoming this crime-riddled mess, literally. Just smash and grabs, cars robbed or carjacked frequently, human excrement all over the streets, drug needles everywhere, violent crime up. There's a reason why he's facing a recall. He deserves, in my opinion, to be recalled. We'll see if the people of San Francisco agree. They already agreed to throw three of their school board members off the school board, which was maybe a little surprising given how wild that community is. I mean, that is a left-wing place. But I guess even some people in San Francisco have their limits. And those three school board members were tossed out on their ear, not narrowly by the skin of their teeth. It was overwhelming and lopsided, those votes. We'll see. The polling is looking pretty good from a law and order perspective, pretty bad from Chesa Boudin's perspective. And if the polls are right, he will be thrown out. 
What an indictment of the voters that he was ever elected in the first place. They asked for this. They asked for what they're getting it. They're uh, what they're getting now, and they're getting it nice and hard. And they've decided that actually, on second thought, this isn't great, and we don't want this anymore. And they might, might, be on the brink of tossing him out. Now I had to laugh. There was a piece, sort of this sympathetic piece, propagandizing for him in New York Magazine again about how difficult and unfair this is to him. And it's just out of his control, and he's being demagogued, and it's not really all his fault. It's not dissimilar at all to a new piece in Politico from yesterday about Joe Biden and how it's, again, so unfair, just so beyond the control of any one man or the system and him getting all this blame. He's just so unlucky. This total lack of accountability and the whining from these people who want power, get power, screw everything up badly, and then are offended when anyone notices and wants to hold them accountable. But this New York Magazine piece about the recall election in San Francisco tomorrow actually very creatively tried to find a way to blame Republicans. Because they said, well, this is a city that was run for many years by Republicans. Yeah, that was a long time ago. It's been roughly 60 years. 60 And you still have people trying to find a way to blame the Republican Party for what's happening in San Francisco. That is very special. Obviously not going to fly, not going to work with anyone, but they're trying. They're giving it the old college try because they've got nothing else, evidently. Joining us now, Mark Thiessen, columnist at The Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI and a former presidential speechwriter under President George W. Bush. Mark, great to talk to you. Good to be with you, Guy. I just want to get your reaction. I just briefly mentioned this Politico story, which echoes an NBC News story from last week. The upshot of both of them being Joe Biden is presiding over all these difficult things, but it's not really his fault. And he's privately seething that he is so unpopular because it's just not fair that these unlucky things are all aligning on his watch and – People are blaming him for it, and it's just, you know, not not just it's a grave injustice to him. And they're sort of casting about um, trying to figure out how to turn the thing around because all the stupid voters keep so unfairly blaming him for what's happening in the country. Uh, I wonder if you think that that is a strategy that is going to work out for them. Yeah, he's going on Jimmy Kimmel. I'm sure that's going to turn his approval ratings around. I mean, <laughs> you know, anytime the president is saying it's, it's frustrating with his approval and says it's a communications problem, you know that he doesn't get it. Uh, the reality is, look, lots of lots of challenges are, fall, are, are coming in his term. That's what great presidents live for. <laughs> great presidents want to, you know, Bill Clinton was president for, you know, eight un- almost inconsequential years. Uh, between the end of the Cold War and the start of the challenges of the 21st century. You know, he, he was, you know, he, 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 what you want to be, you don't want to be a president when there's nothing big going on in the world and you're just sort of, you know, watching the cruise ship go. You want to be a president when in times of challenge, yeah, but, in times Mark, of trouble, beyond that, times of the, beyond that, he, he wanted the job in the middle of a lot of hardship, right? That was part of yeah. his argument. He said, you got to get Trump yeah. out of here. And I don't remember a bunch of stories, by the way, Mark Thiessen, about Donald Trump and just how unfair it was that COVID hit on his watch and, and everyone just got it all wrong. And without that, he would have been reelected in this this really bad luck. Uh, there might be a little bit of truth to that. But guess what? When you're in charge, 
People are going to judge you based on your reaction. I just don't remember that sort of sympathetic, hand-wringing coverage like, oh, you know, this guy can't catch a break. Poor Donald. And also, by the way, Joe Biden blamed him for the deaths of everybody who died from COVID. I mean, literally said that those deaths are on Donald Trump's hands. So, you know, it's kind of rich for him to now turn around and say that, oh, people are blaming me for high gas prices. It's Putin's fault. I mean, it's just it's so weak. But again, that's that's what he is. He's weak. He's a weak person. He's weak on the international stage. He's weak politically. You know, he projects weakness in the world. And that's and that just confirms it. It's a weak response. Woe is me is not what great. You know, you never heard Churchill saying, woe is me. How unfair. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. We shall fight them in the skies. We shall fight them in the fields. And it's also unfair. Please like me. It's not my fault. Yeah. Right. Like I don't I remember that part of the of that famous speech. Uh, I want to play for you related to all of this, Mark. Soundbite from ABC News yesterday, the Sunday show on that network. They came out with a new poll. The poll is very ugly for Joe Biden and his party for all the obvious reasons. And I know listening to this might trigger Joe because he's just whinging about how unfair life is on all of these things. But the electorate is feeling what it's feeling. And here's part of what they're feeling in Cut 24. What you're seeing is President Biden is a serious drag on Democratic candidates nationwide, and it's driven by his approval rating on a range of issues. He is badly underwater on all of the top issues, including the big ones, inflation, gas prices. He is less than 30 percent approval rating on the issues that we're told by voters are dominating their state of mind, even on issues like gun violence, abortion rights, issues that he is elevating into the conversation in recent weeks. He is still uh, significantly underwater. The ABC poll also showed that Republicans have a double-digit enthusiasm advantage ahead of November, at least for now. Republicans are much more eager to come out and vote. That is one of those key ingredients for a wave year. And the response, at least for the last two weeks in the White House, has been, oh, we're not getting our message out properly. We have a messaging problem. And all this negativity isn't really our fault and our hands are tied and it's beyond our control and it's just not fair. And it's like Biden's off on the beach in Rehoboth playing the world's tiniest violin. And I think a lot of Americans who elected him to return to normalcy, which was the plan, aren't really interested in that sorry sack song. No, that's exactly right. If this uh, if this is normal, give us the MAGA agenda back. Um, it's what a lot of people are thinking. I mean, look, Joe even Biden take ultra mega, ultra mega. Exactly. Well, <laughs> you know what? You know what? What life was like under the ultra mega agenda? People were working. Inflation was low. Gas prices were two and a half dollars, two dollars and fifty cents. There was no labor shortage. There was no formula shortage. There was. I mean, the list goes on and on. Like you know, they, they think he's going to win by running against the ultra mega agenda the ultra mega agenda sounds pretty good these days but look he hit a he hit a historic milestone on friday friday was his 500th day in office and he officially became the least popular president in the history of presidential polling at 500 days into his presidency he is less popular higher disapproval than every president from truman to trump 500 days into his presidency. I mean, it's it's a real achievement. It's a real achievement. achievement. Yeah, it is historic. It's another historic achievement from the Biden administration. Uh, Another one being gas prices have doubled on their watch. Doubled on their watch. And I know it's not all their fault, but they pretend it's not at all their fault, which people don't believe because it's not true. You mentioned the uh, the formula shortage, 
which they are scrambling to try to catch up on. They were totally flat-footed. They could have seen this coming by January. Biden admitted that he didn't hear about it until April, which was months after the recall at the Abbott facility, which the CEOs of the relevant companies all said we knew it was going to be very bad. Uh, The White House is trying to say, oh, no, we've been all over this every single day, 24-7 since then. Well, evidently not based on what the president said himself last week. His commerce secretary, Gina Raimondo, was on CNN yesterday. Listen to this exchange with Jake Tapper, Cut 23. You're the secretary of commerce. When did you first learn of this problem? Uh, I first learned about it, you know, uh, a couple of months ago. So this is uh, this is, so a, this is a difficult issue, but uh, yes, probably April. I'm not involved in the administration's response here. I should say, but I think they're doing a very good job. Like, oh yeah, I also didn't hear about it till April, like the president. And I, I have nothing to do with this. I'll just point that out, Jake. I have nothing to do with any of the response. Oh, but it's it's a very good response. You're doing a very good job. Uh, that's sort of those back to back sentences don't quite work all that well together, at least uh, in terms of messaging. And then I'll get your reaction to that after you also hear this one. Here's Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary on ABC News rewriting history to try to make it seem like, if anything, we ought to be grateful to the glittering success of this whole crowd. Cut 29. There's a very clear difference in strategies here uh, against some very challenging economic problems. And by the way, uh, you can also look at the track record of where we've gotten over the course of the last year. Of course, we have challenges right now, but look at the uh, where this administration began, where there was a very real risk of recession, if not depression. What? A very real risk of depression by January of 2021. That is not true. There were back-to-back big consecutive quarters of economic growth. Jobs were coming back. You had three vaccines. You had the economy wanting to roar back to life. So here's one of his cabinet secretaries saying, well, I've got nothing to do with the baby formula stuff. And we didn't really know about it until April, but they're doing a good job. And another cabinet secretary trying to pretend like if not for Joe Biden's miraculous doings, we would be in a depression or something. Mark, I'll give you the last word. It's just, you know, this is this is why the approval rating is so high. It's not just that we have the worst inflation in 40 years. It's not that we have the highest gas prices in on record. It's not just that we have the worst crime wave in, in since the 1990s. It's not wor- that uh, we have the worst labor shortage on history, and, and, and I could go on with the, with the litany of worst. It's that they keep telling us what a great job they're doing. <laughs> when I remember during the, uh, during the worst days of the Iraq War in 2006, before we launched the surge, when the president would go out and he'd talk about the progress we were making on the ground, because we were making some progress, and, there were, and our troops were doing brave things. And it didn't move the numbers at all, because people, all people saw on their screens were suicide bombers exploding, right? And it was only when we shifted strategy and launched the surge and actually started winning on the ground that public opinion changed. If the president is saying things that are contrary to the lived experience or what people see on their, uh, the American people or what people see on the television cameras, they just dismiss them as being out of touch. And especially when it's somebody like Joe Biden, who seems to be out of touch regardless because he's not fully there. And then he's saying things like, you know, we've, we've the, the deficit is is lower than it's ever been. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, the deficit in my bank account because of inflation. Yeah. Is no, he's, pretty, no, he is. He is what we might call out of permanent touch. 
that's how the president seems to be operating these days. And uh, look, they can spin this. They can complain. They can whine and whinge, self-flagellate, lash out at others, whatever. Uh, it's not working because people are living their lives and seeing the results. And those speak louder than any of the spin, the feeble spin being attempted by any of these people. Mark Thiessen, our colleague here at Fox News, former presidential speechwriter, Washington Post columnist. Mark, always enjoy it. Thank you. Great to be with you. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we mentioned last week the New York Times had a big piece about how mask mandates in America just have not worked in communities with tight mask requirements and wide compliance. You saw just similar infection patterns as in places without mask mandates. We know that was the case in schools. We've been beating that drum forever. We're now learning more about something that we already knew, but just more confirmation. The CDC director spoke with several teachers unions and union bosses before tightening mask guidance based on internal calendar revelations. So before they tightened up masking guidance last May for schools, Biden uh, Biden administration officials were on the phone, on the horn, chatting with NEA officials and other teachers union bosses. Just another example of these teachers unions using their political clout to alter the quote unquote official science, which is why people don't believe the people in charge of this stuff. They've surrendered their credibility by dealing with special interests over actual science. Meanwhile, Los Angeles Times news story today, suddenly California officials are moving back to new indoor mask rules as cases rise in the state. Will they ever learn? Whether it works or not, they always want this control, and that's going to stop when the voters stop it. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here in this brand new broadcast week on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. I'll see you tonight on Special Report with Brett Baer. I'm on the panel right around 6.45 or so p.m. Eastern time. That's on Fox News Channel. Fox News Alert. The Dow closes the day just about flat, up a little bit, up 14 points in the green, ending at 32,914. And another Fox News alert just coming in from across the pond in London, where all the excitement over the weekend involved the Queen, and then some political uh, political excitement, I should say, today involving the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, facing a vote of no confidence Within his own party, would he survive as the conservative leader? And he did, in fact, somewhat narrowly survive, 211 to 148. A decent cushion, but a worse result than Theresa May had about four years ago when she faced an insurgency within her own party. And ultimately, that situation became untenable for her politically. We shall see. But Labor is surging. I think there's a lot of frustration out there in the world, and we're seeing governments go down right and left. 
And uh, we'll see what happens in this country in a number of months. But that is uh, just a quick update from across the pond, some U.K. politics for you here on The Guy Benson Show. Joining us now, back here on the home front, is Republican Whip Steve Scalise of the House of Representatives, a congressman from Louisiana, their first congressional district down there, of course, a member of the GOP. He's author of the book Back in the Game, One Gunman, Countless Heroes, and the fight for my life. Congressman, it's good to have you back here on the show. Welcome. Hey, Guy. It's great to be back on with you. I'd like to start with the issue of guns and mass shootings as we are still sort of reeling from what happened in Uvalde, Texas, and we're learning more about what did and did not happen on the law enforcement front. I know there's been a lot of attention on gun control or at least something related to guns, and a lot of people are calling, as they often do, for action. There's some bipartisan movement in the Senate. It's unclear exactly what that might look like. You, of course, were the victim. You were almost assassinated by a left-wing gunman a number of years ago on that baseball practice field. And it seems like whenever you speak out on gun-related issues, there's actually a lot of anger and vitriol directed at you because they feel like because you're the victim of gun violence, you should agree with them on what to do about it. You don't, and so it seems like that's a source of frustration for many on the left. I just wonder, A, what you think of that. Like, I feel like you've probably, more than anyone, earned the right to say whatever you want on this stuff. We're all Americans. We all have a right to say what we want. But, you know, you you bled and almost died uh, in, in one of these mass shooting incidents. That's the first point. And then I want to get to the policy questions after that. But I want to let you weigh in first on some of those criticisms that crop up, it seems like, on a regular basis when these things happen. Yeah, Guy, and, you know, it is a kind of bizarre phenomenon. I've recognized it, but I'm not going to stop speaking out because, you know, I've got strong beliefs. I I expressed those beliefs before I even ran for Congress, and they've been the same. I think there were some people that that thought, okay, after a shooting, clearly you must be for gun control. And I said, well, first of all, it was guys with guns that saved my life. And, And in so many shootings, there are actual attempted shootings that are stopped because people with guns uh, every day in America, use guns to, to protect themselves and their family. It doesn't get the reporting that a shooting does, a mass shooting. And, you know, and first, let me say, I mean, my heart goes out to victims of any shooting. And, you know, unfortunately, on the left, you've got some people, as we're saying prayers, they're saying, no, no more prayers. We need gun control. And they immediately rush to a conclusion without, number one, grieving for the victims, but also without getting the facts. And shouldn't we go and get the facts and find out what's really going on in society before immediately Democrats' visceral reaction is to go and take away your guns? And and that's not the answer. And, you know, again, in my case and in so many other cases, guns are used to save people's lives. I mean, you've seen record gun sales right now because crime is out of control. And, Guy, you've seen it. You've reported on it. There's a crime problem in America where they've defunded the police. You've got DAs that don't won't even prosecute criminals, for goodness sake. And so, of course, people are going out in record numbers and buying guns to defend themselves. Why would you want to take guns away from those law-abiding citizens? And so, yeah, if they're going to continue to throw hatred uh, because I'm going to speak out in support of my strong beliefs for the Second Amendment, then so be it. But I'm not going to stop doing it. Yeah, I'm actually glad that you brought up the fact that your life was saved by a security detail, an armed security detail with handguns. One of your colleagues on the Democratic side 
just a few days ago said in hearings on gun control that guns are never used to save people in an attempted mass shooting of someone with uh, what they call an assault rifle. And immediately multiple people brought up multiple examples, and you're one of them. If you didn't have those good guys with guns protecting you, I think it's almost certain that you would be dead and probably some of your Republican colleagues would be as well because you would have been totally defenseless against that maniac. Absolutely. And and again, this this happens every day. There was a very clear example last week in West Virginia that got very little Mm -hmm. press coverage, uh, but there was a, a gunman that went to a, it was a birthday party, and a, it was a graduation birthday party with a bunch of young kids. And the shooter was intending on killing everybody there. And there was a woman with a handgun. And she pulled out the handgun and took down the guy with the, with the rifle. And there was no mass shooting because a woman with a handgun stopped the shooting. And by the way, you got Joe mm-hmm. Biden going after handguns right now, too. So, you know, they, they, they've got to recognize that this idea that you you know, just taking away the Second Amendment rights of people, that hearing you mentioned last week, uh, one of my colleagues on the Democrat side said, well, if we can't take away guns and we're just going to go after the filibuster so that we can then go and pack the Supreme Court, if they're yep. going to uphold the Second Amendment to the Constitution, they'll just undo the Second Amendment by packing the Supreme Court. I mean, this is crazy. Well, another one called, another one called constitutional rights quote-unquote BS. He's like, I'm sick of your constitutional rights BS. Well, it's, it's not BS. It's, it's really the foundation of the country. So, Congressman, that brings us to policy. Obviously, you're unwilling to do certain things that some advocates are pushing for. What are you willing to consider? Because we do have a problem in this country, and it's sickening to so many of us. What is something that you'd be willing to look at and consider seriously? Yeah, guy, there are a number of things, and that's what frustrates me about this, is that the, the conversation immediately is taken by the far left over to gun control instead of the root of the problem. Why are young people trying to go and commit these violent acts? And, you know, again, just a few days ago in Berkeley, California, a student was trying to blow up his high school. And it was stopped because people, other people saw what he was going to do, heard about what he was going to do, and told authorities. And they thwarted it. You know, that was going to be a a school blown up, for goodness sake. And thank God somebody stopped it from happening. But this is where the focus needs to be, you know, because decades ago we had guns. We just didn't have these mass shootings at schools. We didn't have people trying to blow up their schools. Something is going on with young kids that we're just not even focusing on, that we need to be focused on. And immediately it goes to gun control and it pushes everybody into their corners and nothing gets done because the real root of the problem isn't getting fixed. And so what I've suggested is, one, let's put some real attention and resources into trying to root out the problem. Hardening schools is one place to start. You know, let's talk about faith, by the way, as part of this. I mean, they've taken God out of schools in so many places. And then, lo and behold, you have so many things like this. Faith actually does matter. Uh, and, and is a, a key component, but helping to have teachers and other people identify problems where they can alert authorities, where they can educate kids on alerting authorities if they see something, because that really does matter in a lot of cases. Almost every school shooting we've seen, the mass shootings, it's been many kids in that school after the fact say, you know what, I'm not surprised it was him. I, I thought he was going to do something like that. Well, okay, why aren't we encouraging kids if they see that somebody's really having serious problems, whether it's mental problems, anger problems, to go and alert authorities in advance and let them go look at it. Let authorities do their job. 
And that's not being encouraged enough. It just immediately becomes about taking away guns and then everybody goes in their corners instead of saying, why is this happening today when it didn't happen in the 1960s when you had AR-15s? You know, it's not the weapon, it's the action that we need to be focused on. Congressman Scalise, on another matter, I want to talk about energy. We now have record high gas prices in this country. Indeed, the average gas price in America has doubled under this administration, doubled, which is a very dramatic number. We are climbing towards $6 potentially nationally, which is just, I think, crazy to so many people. And the argument that we hear from the Biden administration, and they say this in various venues and interviews, uh, it just seems to be that they are put upon. It's all just a big, unfair, unlucky thing. It's everyone else's fault. It's Putin. It's supply chain stuff, all the inflation they, they can't really control, and it's not their fault, and it's not fair that they're getting blamed for it. And you know, they say, we don't have a dial in the White House to turn up or down gas prices. We don't have control over it. Look, there is a modicum of truth that the president does not have total control over these things. That's obviously more than just a modicum of truth. That is true. But there are things that can be done and other things that can be undone that would have an impact on inflation, whether it's gas prices or otherwise. And they kind of just want to shirk any responsibility for any of it. What is your response when you hear them say, this is basically out of our control and it's just a you know conservative talking point to try to blame us for political reasons. Yeah, Guy, this is completely in their control. And you've seen the administration scrambling for over a year now, throwing spaghetti at the wall. Who can they blame? Blame Putin, blame oil companies, blame the supply chain, blame the Grinch who stole Christmas. They won't look in the mirror and admit what they've done. Joe Biden, not only as president of the United States, Let's go back to when he was a candidate for president of the United States. He was standing next to uh, Bernie Sanders. And by the way, he was to the left of Bernie Sanders, no pun intended. And he said, Joe Biden said, quote, no more drilling on federal lands, no more drilling, including offshore, no ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period, ends. That's what Joe Biden said. And then day one, as president of the United States, he started taking very specific action to do just that, to undo and, and impede the ability for us to produce energy in America. Well, what happened? Gee whiz, lo and behold, gas prices started going up because we limited our ability to produce our own energy in America. Who did we come dependent on? It wasn't like we just stopped using oil and natural gas. We still used oil and natural gas. In fact, today we use more than we did a year ago. So that meant we had to import it from other countries. Yeah, we're asking other countries. We're talking about Saudi Arabia. We're talking about Venezuela. And the idea that they're just innocent bystanders in all of this, uh, the public isn't buying it because it isn't true. Congressman Steve Scalise, Republican, Louisiana, the House Republican whip. Congressman, great to talk to you. Great to end with you, Guy. Thanks a lot. I'm Guy and Ben. We are back. I would like to talk about an interesting little drama playing out in New York City. And it begins actually back in early May. We talked about it here on the show briefly. We had Carol Markowitz on and we addressed it with her. And I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not dredging up a dormant controversy. It's an active controversy. But as I say, it began in early May. 
And what happened was Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was invited by a Jewish organization called the Jewish Leadership Conference to come to New York on June 12th, so this coming Sunday, and to give a talk about Jewish people in Florida and how the community is thriving and safe in his state and address what the organizers of the event were calling the Florida model of a Jewish renaissance in the state of Florida. That's the way that they were framing it, and that is why the governor was invited. And it was all scheduled to happen at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City. And I guess under pressure at some point, the leaders of the museum decided that they did not want this event to go forward because Ron DeSantis did not align with their spirit of inclusivity. And so according to the event organizers at the Jewish Leadership Conference, they were given an ultimatum. Either you drop DeSantis from the agenda or you can't do your event here at all. And I guess they ended up deciding that they were going to say farewell to the museum. They were not going to ditch DeSantis. More on that to come. But it's interesting, again, just looking back at some of the excuses that were given at the time, the executive director at the museum had said in a statement that they don't do politics at the museum. And that was really the issue here. It wasn't about censorship or blocking any particular politician No, it was about being apolitical, staying apolitical, and not having political figures or speeches at the museum. Although, of course, as it turns out, that was not true. AOC has spoken at this museum. AOC at the time was running for Congress. She had wavered on whether or not she believes Israel has a right to exist at all before that. Since joining Congress, she has flirted aggressively with the anti-Semitic BDS movement, boycott, divest, sanction. She has ostentatiously and proudly befriended two of the most virulent anti-Semitic members of Congress, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. But AOC was a welcome speaker at this museum. So was Governor Cuomo. So was Mayor de Blasio. So was Senator Schumer. And the list goes on. So the museum doesn't do politics, you see, except when they do. So the excuse was Ron DeSantis is a politician. We don't do politics. He's not welcome. It's not inclusive enough. But all these other left-wing politicians, that was fine. So there's hypocrisy there. There's dishonesty there. There's irony there. When they're talking about the importance of inclusivity and they decide to exclude a Jewish group and a duly elected sitting governor of one of the states with the largest Jewish populations in the entire country. But that's what they chose to do. So, again, we mentioned it here. We asked Carol about it. She was displeased. She wrote a column about it in The New York Post. And after that conversation, after reading her column, I remember weeks ago thinking, gosh, I wonder where this thing's going to end up. What's the outcome going to be? And then because there's so many things happening in the news cycle all the time, I sort of lost sight of this thing. 
But we got the answer to the question earlier today because the new venue that the organization has found is now under pressure to cancel the event as well, which is where the issue of Pride Month and the LGBT community comes into play. I'll explain when we come back. You don't want to miss it. It's The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I want to pick up where we left off involving this saga in New York City involving Ron DeSantis and the freedom of association, the freedom to peaceably assemble, freedom of speech. All of those are relevant. So to recap here, there was the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City, all scheduled to do the event. DeSantis was going to be one of the speakers on issues related to policies and Jewish life in the state of Florida. Because of, I would say, vast distortions of the parents' rights bill, the LGBT bill, that critics wrongly called Don't Say Gay, the people at the museum said, okay, you can't use the venue here anymore. We're not into politics at all except, you know, when they are. And so we now know that the organization said, screw you. We're not going to partner with you at this museum anymore. We are not going to bow to your demands. We are not going to uninvite one of our esteemed guests. The whole event is off. We're taking our business somewhere else. Good day. And the somewhere else is Chelsea Piers, which is on the west side of Manhattan, downtown, huge, huge complex. I mean, it is multiple venues spanning blocks. It's massive. So it would appear that this organization... Contacted Chelsea Piers, signed the contract, got their new venue for this same event, same lineup, same everything, same date. This time DeSantis was going to be included. And then some New York Democrats, specifically LGBT New York elected Democrats, got wind of this. And they decided that because this is happening in a neighborhood and an area that has a large gay population, and because it's during Gay Pride Month or LGBTQ Pride Month, They're going to make a big stink about it and try to get the whole thing canceled from this place as well. Now, I am confident that if this were in May or July, they would also want it canceled because they hate Ron DeSantis and they hate conservatives and they don't want anyone with different ideas being allowed to speak because it's hateful and dangerous and all the normal things that they always carry on about. What they're doing here is weaponizing Pride Month to try to use that as, I would say, the lever of power and a source of leverage for them in the month of June to try to apply maximum pressure and bullying onto Chelsea Piers. So the New York Daily News has this story. They have a headline, Don't Say Ron, which is, I guess, their clever take on Don't Say Gay or something. LGBTQ Pauls call for nicks of event with Florida governor at Chelsea Piers as pride returns to city. Pride month in the heart of Chelsea, birthplace of the modern LGBTQ movement, is no time for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to come to the Big Apple, says a group of local lawmakers. I'm quoting from the piece. State Senator Brad Hoyleman and two fellow LGBTQ Democrats are calling on Chelsea Piers to cancel an event 
at one of its venues to feature the conservative firebrand next Sunday. They say his backing of the so-called Don't Say Gay law, which restricts discussion of sexual identity and gender at Florida schools, which is not exactly an accurate description, but we'll just let that slide for now, makes him unworthy to speak in Chelsea during Pride. Quote, it's outrageous that Chelsea Pierce would host an anti-LGBTQ politician like DeSantis in the middle of Pride Month, in the middle of the heart of Chelsea, Hoyleman, who represents the neighborhood, told the Daily News. To host a homophobic and transphobic public official in this neighborhood in the middle of Pride is insulting and hurtful to our community, he added. He noted that Pier 60, the West Side waterfront venue that plans to host the Jewish Leadership Conference where DeSantis is scheduled to speak, is just a few blocks from the historic Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. Now, this hysterical shrieking from this guy and others should be ignored by Chelsea Piers and its management team, in my opinion. I would note, first of all, oh, it's just a few blocks away from Stonewall. Number one, so what? Number two, you could say that anywhere in Manhattan is blocks away from Stonewall. I think the proximity to a specific location for a governor to show up, he's not even talking about these issues. He's talking about the Jewish community and certain policies in Florida, nothing to do with LGBT rights or the so-called don't say gay contretemps, which again has been, I think, twisted beyond recognition in a lot of quarters. A lot of people who are all mad about it probably have no idea what it actually does and says. I've interviewed DeSantis about it. I've explained some of the things that I support in it and some of the things that I take issue with. And one of the things that I really take issue with is people pretending that it's some cartoon version that it's not. I also think it is absurd. I'm not surprised that they're trying, but I think it is absurd that any politician purporting to speak on any community gets to pretend that they own a neighborhood or they own a month of the year. Like Chelsea in Manhattan is not a gay-only neighborhood where the gays, whoever they are, the powers that be in gaydom, get to decide who is allowed to show up at private events in that neighborhood. That's not how it works. This is America. Even Manhattan, it's still America. And it's like, what, official gaydom? They're the arbiters of what people are allowed to do or say in private, peaceable, free association events during the month of June because it's pride? No. Like, get out of here and get over yourself. Not everything is about you. Let me put it another way. Not everything is about us. I'm in the community. I'm sure many of these closed-minded Bitter people would reject me because I don't agree with them on everything. It's much more of a political platform for them than some sort of celebration of identity or liberty or freedom or progress because I'm on board for some of that but not this other stuff. But I am, by definition, representative of one of the letters in the acronym, which, again, I believe this is how it works. By definition, I am therefore in the community. So when these people speak on behalf of the community, they are not actually speaking on behalf of the entire community. And a lot of us think that not everything is about us. Yes, even in the month of June, 
when a governor that I agree with most of the time and disagree with sometimes gets invited by a private organization to come speak about a completely separate issue that happens to align with a month that is devoted in some quarters to celebrating LGBT rights and pride. I do not immediately associate the two things or view any of this as a slap in the face or an outrageous affront or whatever they want to say. This happens to be the cudgel that they believe they can use right now to try to bludgeon DeSantis politically and anyone who would dare to invite him to their precious neighborhood in their precious city. Back to the Daily News story. Listen to this. Assemblywoman Deborah Glick and Councilman Eric Botcher whose districts include Chelsea, also called on Chelsea Pierce to cancel the event. Quote, the work of people like Ron DeSantis kills our young people, stated Bodger. Homophobia doesn't just exist in Florida, however, and it must be fought wherever it rears its bigoted head, including here in Chelsea. Ah, yes. Here here we have, yes, people are going to die again because of conservative or Republican policies. This might have a little bit more of a punch. It might pack more of one if they didn't use this type of rhetoric, this hysterical nonsense about everything. Remember the changes to Internet regulations known as net neutrality. That was going to be some sort of extinction event, killing people or harming people, especially in marginalized communities. The tax reform bill of 2018 was going to kill thousands of people. That's what Pelosi and others said. Every single thing, they find a way to say, not just, hey, this is maybe a bad idea or we oppose it for these reasons. It's going to kill. It's going to kill our children. This is how they argue. And so people tune it out because it's so preposterous and it's also tired and boring and predictable and familiar. They go to the same well over and over again. It's the crying wolf syndrome. Enough. Story goes on. The lawmakers focused their criticism on Chelsea Piers, with Hoyleman saying they should take responsibility. They're the landlord. This is literally an attempt at censorship and coercion. These are elected government politicians, officials, using their official capacity in government to try to coerce a private entity to cancel a private contract with a private organization because they object to one of the people speaking to that organization. It is absolutely outrageously inappropriate. And because they can't pressure DeSantis, he won't back down, obviously. And because they're not going to pressure this Jewish organization, they've already proven they're not going to back down. They're going after the new venue instead. And they're going to try to whip this up and get a bunch of activists to now threaten boycotts and that sort of thing. I guarantee you that's what the next step would be here. Chelsea, peers, coddles, homophobes. Like, that's the next thing. This is how they operate. Just sick the mob on people. Here's another quote from the story. Having someone like Ron DeSantis in Chelsea during Pride Month is enraging and insulting to the LGBTQ community. And all New Yorkers committed to diversity and safe spaces for all, stated Glick, the first openly LGBTQ member of the state legislature. So here's the thing. 
as I established earlier, I'm actually in the LGBTQ community. And let me say on the record in public before the nation, I am neither enraged nor insulted by any of this. I am more enraged and insulted that someone trying to or purporting to speak on my behalf is trying to bully a private organization into canceling and censoring a speech by an elected representative. Part of me, just sort of like on the cynical side, wants to ask, I wonder if these people are anti-Semites or have problems with Jews. Maybe some of them are Jewish, but would they be self-loathing in this case? This is how they argue all the time. Right? This is a Jewish organization and a governor speaking on Jewish issues. They're trying to get this thing canceled. Maybe it's because they've got a problem with Jews. Maybe they're the bigots in all of this, right? This is how the escalation would go. I don't want to play that game. I don't think it's fair. I don't think playing by their rules is the way to win an argument. But Chelsea is not a safe space for anyone. Chelsea Peers, as a business, is not required to bow to the capricious, ever-changing, safe space standards of any activist or politician. And people like Glick and Hoyleman and the rest of them are welcome to show up outside with signs and picket DeSantis and make their displeasure heard if they want to outside. They absolutely should not try to use their official positions of power to do what they're trying to do, which is a concerted effort at government censorship. It's outrageous. It's actually disgusting. And I'd be interested to hear from legal experts if maybe there are some First Amendment issues at play here. And they should absolutely stop trying to pretend that they represent everyone in the community and expressing their over-the-top cartoonish outrage on behalf of people like me who do not share it at all. Speak for yourself. Don't you dare try to speak for me because you don't. Not quite done. One last point to make, and I'll make it as soon as we come back. Short break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. We've got this monologue about this firestorm in New York City, Ron DeSantis, tolerance. I'm almost done, but one last point. I guarantee you it is very predictable that some people will say, oh, well, Ron DeSantis restricted free speech. I mean, don't say gay, right? Down in Florida. So he doesn't have a leg to stand on. He's canceling gay people in Florida, so he's going to get canceled in New York. Tough luck. You reap what you sow, Ronnie. And that would be a very compelling and good point to a slow-witted, ignorant person. But we don't really do that around here. So let's address that counterpoint, if you want to call it that. First of all, no one's saying don't say gay. That's a total made-up lie. No one is banned from saying the word gay in Florida or in Florida schools. The restriction is on classroom instruction within a certain age range, K through 3, on sexual and gender identity. Don't say gay is a misnomer and propaganda. And again, I say that as someone who has some issues with the law, and I've 
written about them and talked about them repeatedly. You can go and look it up if you're interested. Number two, in response to this, it is not only normal and appropriate, but literally the job of elected government officials to make prudential judgments about what is or is not appropriate to be taught to minors in government-run schools. It's fine to have debates over those things. Shaping curricula for public schools is totally in bounds and indeed the province of public officials. It's how it works. That is very much not the same as politicians trying to use their power to force a private organization to vitiate a contract with another private organization because they don't like one of the speakers scheduled to address a private event. There is no comparing shaping government school curricula by government officials and government officials meddling and interfering in an event representing free association. One is appropriate and part of the job. One is extremely inappropriate and arguably unconstitutional. Conflating them is specious and dishonest and ridiculous on its face for reasons that I've just conveyed. So I very much hope that this event goes forward as planned. For what it's worth, Chelsea Pierce seems to be holding its ground for now. They put out a statement in favor of LGBT rights and inclusivity and the community and everyone feeling welcome. They hasten to add that an event happening at one of their properties does not mean that the company endorses the event or any ideas shared at that event. Obviously, anyone who's not a complete nitwit understands that, but they felt the need to say that for some of these nitwits. But they did not address the demand for them to cancel the contract, and I hope they stick by it. I hope the event moves forward. I hope DeSantis gives a good speech. And, hey, maybe while he's in Manhattan, he can swing by the Jewish Heritage Museum, buy a ticket, and go look at the exhibits, and maybe leave a little note in their guest book that he was there after all, despite their intolerance and their lack of inclusivity. So, obviously, I wanted to get some of that off my chest. This type of thing drives me crazy, if you couldn't tell. And if people are going to use the occasion of Pride Month to try to speak on all of our behalf and engage in close-minded bullying and censorship, we're going to use our platform during said month to push back. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Howie Kurtz joins me. What a weekend for The Washington Post. Woof. We'll get into that and more when we come back. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Monday. Welcome in. Glad to have you all on board. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. We air 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, and this final hour, 5 to 6 Eastern, is the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. It's expanding. It's growing in popularity. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they are sold near you, and there are a lot more places coming online. Just plug in your zip code. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 
21 plus only. And as I mentioned, our website here at the show is GuyBensonShow.com. That is available for all ages. It's a family-friendly program. And the podcast is available 24-7, on demand, totally free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight on the panel around 6.45 Eastern Time. Fox News Channel, Brett Bayer and company, see you there. Joining us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., also host of the podcast Media Buzz Meter at foxnewspodcast.com. Also follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, it's good to have you back here, as always. Good to be back. I'd like to start with the announcement from the president's team that the day after tomorrow, Joe Biden will finally be doing an interview with Jimmy Kimmel. Not that I've been waiting for a Kimmel-Biden sit-down. I've been waiting for a Biden-anyone sit-down. He has not done an interview since early February. This will be the first interview he has done in four months, Howie. I know it's different. He takes questions here or there. He does press sprays. He'll do press conferences occasionally. That is a different format than sustained questioning with the opportunity for follow-ups and that sort of thing, to which the president has not subjected himself for four months, as I say, with anyone. No journalist, nothing. And unless he schedules one between now and Wednesday evening, the first one in an entire quarter of the year, or I guess third of the year, will be with this very liberal, late-night Democratic strategist, part-time comedian, Jimmy Kimmel. I'm just wondering what you make of the media strategy here from the White House and whether they're making the right call for themselves politically. Should journalists be a little bit more up in arms about this selection, given the utter dearth of interviews for a third of the year? We should be up in arms. We should storm the castle. I mean, look, I've been saying this for the 100 days and more. Why doesn't Joe Biden, from his own political point of view, self-preservation, do some interviews, talk to even, you know, what we considered sympathetic allies? He hasn't talked to The Washington Post or The New York Times or MSNBC or CNN, let alone Fox News, Wall Street Journal, and so on. And you you sort of have to conclude after a while, since it's obviously Biden is, is flailing in the polls and has his hands full of a bunch of crises that he's not handling well, from inflation to baby formula, that his team feels that they do an interview – He'll say some things that they'll have to clean up, uh, and therefore the benefits are outweighed by the costs. But then – and I have no problem with the president going on late night. Uh, But of course it's going to be something of a love fest. I'm sure Jimmy Kimmel will ask one or two uh, kind of serious-sounding questions, so it's not uh, a complete uh, bear hug between these two guys. But uh, if it it could have been Stephen Colbert. Instead, it's Kimmel, who is – you know, who spent six years bashing Donald Trump, who was an unabashed Biden booster, and it may be entertaining, but not exactly journalism. Yeah, I mean, he's even more of an overt Democratic partisan than most journalists at some of the outlets that you just mentioned. He does Democrat talking points regularly during his monologues. He has gotten some of those talking points through the years directly from Chuck Schumer's office. I mean, this is not going to be a hard-hitting interview. It doesn't have to be. It's a late-night comedy show. Mm-hmm. But it's not really the type of serious interview that I think the American people deserve to hear from their president in a time of multiple crises, as the White House itself admits. They've talked about all the crises that are happening. They claim it's unfair or whatever. But 
he needs to answer questions from real journalists. And whatever you think of Jimmy Kimmel, this will not be that. But it does remind me, Howie, of not only the piece that we talked about earlier in the show today from Politico, which I guess came out yesterday, this frustration. Oh, he's he's steaming mad. Biden is that he's struggling so much in the polls and he's seething privately that his approval ratings are worse even than Donald Trump's. And it's also unfair, they believe, over there at the White House. All these issues that are out of their control. It's just it's piled up. And woe is me, that whole look. I know that the White House is denying the story, even though I think it was kind of I don't know, an excuse-making story for them. I would not be surprised if someone over there planted it. But it very much aligns with the NBC News story last week that we covered here on the show. Similar thing, Biden frustrated, White House annoyed, everyone looking around like this isn't their fault. And it's just so unjust that the American people keep blaming them for everything. I don't know whether they want this to be the way that they're being presented or they're not happy with it. But clearly that's the bunker mentality right now over there as we have learned from two different news organizations in the span of just over a week. You know, I, I got into this with Jen Psaki when I interviewed her on Media Buzz, which is why doesn't the president do more interviews? And then I got the usual, yes, he takes questions. And, yeah, we, you know, everybody knows that uh, two or three questions on different topics with no opportunity really to follow up is not the same as doing a sit-down interview or holding a full fledged news conference. And, you know, the way I put it is, my shorthand is, you know, he's, he's abandoned the media megaphone. He could make news every single day. He could make news on weekends, but he doesn't do it. And into that void steps critics, activists, even dissident Democrats who are ticked off about this or that that Biden hasn't done or should be doing, not to mention Republicans and, and other bloviators. So um, I think it's a real misstep. And I also think it's not a coincidence that he's going on Kimmel Wednesday night when that's the day before the House launches its first prime time hearing for the January 6th um, investigation. Uh, and even though that's something that's a reason he's going on, I, I think he then wants to get out of the way as that's going to dominate the news for several days afterwards. I mean, look, if they think that Jimmy Kimmel and January 6th commission hearings are going to save them, I think that's a grave political miscalculation. But even if it were a decent calculation on their part, I still don't think it would be a justifiable excuse to not do interviews. And when you're silent on interviews for four months and you finally come up for air, it's Jimmy Kimmel. I just think it's a bad look. And we'll see if voters <laughs> tend to agree. November is coming in the face. to journalism. Our profession. Yeah. I want to ask you, speaking of our profession, Howie, about a wild series of battles mostly conducted on Twitter over the weekend, involving the journalists of The Washington Post. And generally, I would try to just stray away from all this drama. I'm not that interested in any of these people. However, taken together, it really seemed like it was one of the most prestigious and powerful newspapers in the country having something of a nervous breakdown in public with multiple people on their staff, journalists taking shots at each other for a prolonged period of time, all weekend long, two separate incidents. So one involved a guy called Dave Weigel, who, full disclosure, he was a few years ahead of me in college. I knew him a little bit there. I've met him a couple times. He retweeted a joke deemed by many to be sexist. He was called out for it. He deleted the retweet and apologized for it. But one of his female colleagues went on the warpath for days trying to get him if not fired in much deeper trouble. She was calling out the newspaper. She was calling out her bosses 
by name, and I guess she quote-unquote won because they suspended Weigel. Other journalists from the paper got involved saying, hey, we agree with you. It was not a good tweet by him. He's apologized. Do we really need to do this any further? Why are we doing this all in public? She then continued her jihad against them at that point. So that was one side of it, and that went on hour after hour after hour for days. Then you had Taylor Lorenz, who is this controversial journalist who's burnt a lot of bridges through the years at different publications. She's currently at The Washington Post. We'll see how long that lasts. There are reports that some of the editors have kind of grown tired of her shtick. But she wrote a piece, and it seems like she's been caught in a lie. She claimed that she reached out to people for comment before publication, which is typical standard practice for journalism. These individuals went on social media and called her out saying she did not do that. We have the proof here in our messages and our emails. And the Post has now, I think, put out two or three different corrections as they keep having to correct their own corrections about her journalistic malpractice. She's claiming victimhood how she she's claiming victimhood, as she always does. And that continues to be, I think, a big source of heartburn inside the newsroom. And you juxtapose it with. The personalities sniping at each other on this other matter about a retweeted joke. Quite a weekend for one of the flagship newspapers in this country. Enjoying all the internecine warfare. The first female journalist you referred to who objected to the sexist joke, which was a really bad sexist joke, uh, is Felicia Sanmez, who had been involved in litigation with the newspaper because it had barred her from covering certain uh, stories about alleged sexual harassment, and she had said that she was a victim of past sexual assault. And, you know, if it's something that involves you, you want to defend yourself on Twitter and somebody wants to respond, I don't have any great problem with that. Uh, The the tale of the rinse thing is a a different situation in that, look, she made some mistakes in the story. Uh, She is controversial. She goes on TV a lot and talks about being a victim, uh, but other people think that she uh, creates the mob mentality that goes after people that she doesn't like who tend to be conservatives. But in this particular case, the fact that she apparently – misrepresented herself or just lied about calling people for comment, I mean, that really goes to the heart of fair journalism. I mean, you could not do it and say, oh, you know, uh, I, I was on deadline or I didn't get a chance. But if you say you reached out to somebody and they say, oh, uh-huh, I never got a note from you or it wasn't until after the story was published, that's pretty shoddy. So finally, you know, with all this sniping going on, I'm sure it makes people at the paper uncomfortable. The editor of the Washington Post, Ali Busby, put out this memo basically saying we must treat each other with kindness and respect, which is good <laughs> journalists for Cut it out, guys, and stop uh, sniping inside the tent. And it didn't work because the sniping Uh continued for hours after that email went out. And I guess that raises the question because a lot of the pile-on was about the retweet and the deletion and the, you know, misogyny or whatever. That was what got, I think, the most attention among journalistic types and within journalism circles – But the Lorenz thing was a breach of journalistic protocol and ethics. I'm not saying that neither story matters. I just think it's fascinating to see what the emphasis seems to be among a lot of journalists. And it does lend at least some credibility to this idea that no one's really in charge over at The Washington Post or the people who are in charge nominally are so afraid of some of their own employees. And we've seen this at The New York Times as well, Howie. We talked about it, where editors have gotten – drummed out of their positions and other journalists have gotten fired because they have these little tempests and these little mobs that form within newsrooms, often from the progressive younger wing of the newsroom to try to punish or get rid of other people. And we've seen in numerous instances, the bosses just cave. Apparently, 
you know, out of fear, just sort of this craven thing, well, maybe we'll get the mob to move on and we can get back to work here. It just seems like the inmates are running the asylum, so to speak, in some of these newspapers. And I just don't know if it's going to help in any way, shape or form the credibility problem that a lot of mainstream outlets already suffer in the minds of many Americans, especially if those Americans believe correctly that these passion plays internally represent how the news ultimately gets shaded and covered or not covered for that matter. Yeah, they've been empowered by Twitter. In fact, the outgoing editor of the New York Times sent a member of the staff saying, maybe some of you should just get off Twitter and others should be more careful about what you say. So no editors know how to deal with this. And, you know, there's a little bit of journalists dishing it out and not being able to take it. I, I understand your larger point, Todd, but I would just say, you know, journalists write stories that make uh, lots of trouble for people or call them out or make allegations, sometimes accurate, sometimes exaggerated, whatever. But then uh, when they get on Twitter where they sometimes have the sort of delusion that only all their friends are watching and it's not public to the entire world, you know, and somebody says something they don't like, they go after them and then they, they get gone after and then they, everybody complains, they don't know, I'm getting threats and all this, um, you know, get over it. Uh, I don't right. see why they should be. Well, this uh, is what they do, Howie. Of a protected class. On that phenomenon, you're exactly right, because you have these journalists very self-righteous saying we're about accountability and we're going to visit accountability upon these people who deserve it. And then when there is accountability demanded of them, especially when they do things wrong or they do things that are unethical or seem shady or biased or sloppy or lazy, whatever, they then adopt a posture of how dare you attack me? This is dangerous. You're putting my safety at risk by criticizing me. You know, I'm a woman. I'm a person of color. Like they, they get into all the identity politics stuff like you're not allowed to criticize me publicly. That's dangerous. But my job is to criticize other people publicly. And that's accountability. But I don't do the accountability thing on my end because shut up. That basically seems to be the position. It does indeed. And and that's why I say, I mean, you know, you, nobody has to be on Twitter. I know journalists feel like they have to be on to promote their work. But nevertheless, if you don't like taking people taking shots at you, then go find something else to do, because that's the world we now live in. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Fox News Channel at Howard Kurtz. He's on Twitter. So am I, at Guy P. Benson. For what it's worth, Howie, always enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Stay here. Thanks, Guy. And we will be right back after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show happy hour. If you're listening on the broadcast, the bumper music playing right now is Coldplay. Coldplay is on a big concert tour. And I've heard it's really fun. I'm not a huge Coldplay fan, but I I like some of their music. They put on, from what I hear, a great show. It's something I would consider going to see at some point. Last night, Coldplay was performing at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey at the Meadowlands, home of the Giants and the Jets. And I saw on Instagram late at night that during the concert, Coldplay and Chris Martin surprised the crowd with a cameo musical appearance from the boss, Bruce Springsteen, which is a smart move in New Jersey. Here was the surprise moment, cut 30. I have a tattoo of my own, which is because this person is my hero. But please welcome, I can't believe we get to say it, but please welcome Mr. Bruce Springsteen. So the crowd goes wild, and you can hear there a lot of people yelling, Bruce, which is what Springsteen fans do. 
famously. Then he comes out there and they sang a couple songs together, including Dancing in the Dark, Little Taste, Cut 31. I get up in the evening And I ain't got sort of a slower version. Fine. So I see that this was happening on Instagram. I go to Twitter to see if I can find some videos, including some of the clips that we just played, because it seemed like a cool moment, a cool surprise, especially in Jersey. Great. I like Springsteen setting aside his politics. Who cares? And while I was searching for the videos on Twitter, I found multiple examples of people expressing their outrage and umbrage that people, so many people were booing Bruce Springsteen. At the concert. And they had to be corrected by others saying, no, they weren't booing. They were saying Bruce. That's what they always do for Bruce Springsteen. It's what his fans do. And some people were like, oh, good. I just thought these were awful Republicans booing him because he's a liberal. That was their assumption. Some doubled down. No, it was definitely booze. No, it wasn't. Oh, my gosh. It was brucing. They were brucing, not booing, obviously. I just want to state that for the record. As someone who often disagrees with Bruce... On politics, I would still Bruce at him at a concert, not boo at him. Is that settled? Can we at least agree on that? I hope, maybe, apparently not. Guy Benson Show returns after this. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Back here together on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in today's program, we welcome back to the show Steve Scalise, House Republican whip, a Republican of Louisiana. He stands to be House Majority Leader. If Republicans take care of business in November, we shall see. Here's part of my conversation about guns and other issues with Congressman Scalise. I'd like to start with the issue of guns and mass shootings as we are still sort of reeling from what happened in Uvalde, Texas, and we're learning more about what did and did not happen on the law enforcement front, I know there's been a lot of attention on gun control or at least something related to guns. And a lot of people are calling, as they often do, for action. There's some bipartisan movement in the Senate. It's unclear exactly what that might look like. You, of course, were the victim. You were almost assassinated by a left-wing gunman a number of years ago on that baseball practice field. And it seems like whenever you speak out on gun-related issues, there's actually a lot of anger and vitriol directed at you because they feel like because you're the victim of gun violence, you should agree with them on what to do about it. You don't, and so it seems like that's a source of frustration for many on the left. I just wonder, A, what you think of that. Like, I feel like you've probably, more than anyone, earned the right to say whatever you want on this stuff. We're all Americans. We all have a right to say what we want. But, you know, you you bled and almost died uh, in, in one of these mass shooting incidents. That's the first point. And then I want to get to the policy questions after that. But I want to let you weigh in first on some of those criticisms that crop up, it seems like, on a regular basis when these things happen. Yeah, Guy, and, you know, it is a kind of bizarre phenomenon. I've recognized it, but I'm not going to stop speaking out because, you know, I've got strong beliefs. I I expressed those beliefs before I even ran for Congress, and they've been the same. I think there were some people that that thought, okay, after a shooting, clearly you must be for gun control. And I said, well, first of all, it was guys with guns that saved my life. And and in so many shootings, there are actual attempted shootings that are stopped because people with guns— 
uh, every day in America use guns to, to protect themselves and their family. It doesn't get the reporting that a shooting does, a mass shooting. And, you know, and first, let me say, I mean, my heart goes out to victims of any shooting. And, you know, unfortunately, on the left, you've got some people, as we're saying prayers, they're saying, no, no more prayers. We need gun control. And they immediately rush to a conclusion without, number one, grieving for the victims, but also without getting the facts. And, and shouldn't we go and get the facts and find out what's really going on in society before immediately Democrats' visceral reaction is to go and take away your guns? And, and that's not the answer. And, you know, again, in my case and in so many other cases, guns are used to save people's lives. I mean, you've seen record gun sales right now because crime is out of control. And, Guy, you've seen it. You've reported on it. There's a crime problem in America where they've defunded the police. You've got DAs that don't, won't even prosecute criminals, for goodness sake. And so, of course, people are going out in record numbers and buying guns to defend themselves. Why would you want to take guns away from those law-abiding citizens? And so, yeah, if they're going to continue to throw hatred uh, because I'm going to speak out in support of, of my strong beliefs for the Second Amendment, then so be it. But I'm not going to stop doing it. Yeah, I'm actually glad that you brought up the fact that your life was saved by a security detail, an armed security detail with handguns. One of your colleagues on the Democratic side just a few days ago said in hearings on gun control that guns are never used to save people in an attempted mass shooting of someone with uh, what they call an assault rifle. And immediately multiple people brought up multiple examples, and you're one of them. If you didn't have those good guys with guns protecting you, I think it's almost certain that you would be dead and probably some of your Republican colleagues would be as well because you would have been totally defenseless against that maniac. Absolutely. And and again, this this happens every day. There was a very clear example last week in West Virginia that got very little mm-hmm. press coverage, uh, but there was a, a gunman that went. To a, it was a birthday party, and it was a graduation birthday party with a bunch of young kids. That full interview with Steve Scalise, Republican of Louisiana, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, our podcast has the whole show every single day on demand. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a day at the races. For Cookie Christine and the Clan, we'll talk about it when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. See you on Special Report with Brett Baer coming up in the next hour, a little less than an hour from right now, on Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that. Here at the radio show, our website, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day and growing. Thanks to all of you. But we touched on this a little bit at the end of last week. And I said, I believe on the Friday homestretch, that we would check in for an update with producer Christine, who had mentioned earlier in the week that she had canceled one of her daughter's playdates. Megan was scheduled to hang out with friends, and Christine decided to blow up those plans, uproot them, pull her daughter out of the play date as planned, and instead bring her to the racetrack with all the other degenerate gamblers to drink beer and yell at horses and try to win some money. So I was already very concerned about this, not just having a child there, but just having producer Christine around ponies at all, because we all know the fate that befell her pony when she was a child. 
Christine was given a pony as a gift, rejected the pony, and had poor, sweet carousel offed. And so I feel like having Christine anywhere near anything resembling a pony is just a concerning development. We know of one pony that she had exterminated. I don't know if there are others, and I don't want to even create a possibility where she could become something of a serial killer of ponies. And yet she insisted on going to the racetrack for a day at the races and bringing her daughter, ending a play date so her daughter could come to this sort of den of gambling. And, Christine, I'm just curious how this parenting decision was made and whether or not you think it was a good idea in retrospect. I don't even know what to say to you right now. It was a beautiful family day at the racetrack. The track is is really, really pretty. The weather was gorgeous. We taught Megan all about the family business. Don't forget my father was a thoroughbred horse trainer. Uh, we got to pet some of the horses. They were called pony horses. They are large because they're the ones that escort the thoroughbreds. And plus all the degenerate gamblers talk about them as ponies. Like I'm going to the ponies today. We're betting on the ponies. Are you smoking a stogie, Christine? No, I didn't even have a drink. I didn't even have an alcoholic beverage. But you, I can. find that hard to believe. I, I really did. I really did not. I mean, um, why but- did you? Yeah, oh wait, what did I say? I did. I. I mean, did I say I did? I didn't. Uh, whatever. Why did you pull your daughter out of a play date to come to the racetrack? Couldn't you have sent the daughter to the play date to then go? Drink and smoke and bet on horses? There was no drinking and smoking. Um, No, no. She needed to know what the family— Did you wave a newspaper over your head while the horses were running? Is that something that people do? Yeah, the program. You hold the program and you slap your— Yelling, Yeah, we saw a lot of people. I was holding a program, which my husband was laughing at me because the minute we got into the park, I said, hey, we got to go buy a program. And he goes, you understand it's all online. Like, there's an app. If you want to bet, I I said, no, 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 no. I need— to actually hold the program because I wanted to teach Megan how to read it. You wanted to teach her how to bet on horses. Well, yeah, she didn't understand the odds. I mean, I feel like, but what are you laughing at, Dan? How'd I, the teaching go? Did you win? No, we lost. We lost big time. Oh, I'm shocked. Oh, I'm. Oh, you lost money big time. I'm. I can't believe that. Uh, this is my. I know it's radio, but this is my stunned face right now. Do you play the trumpet, Christine? I don't. But my husband, again, we go up for the first race and, you know, the, the, the trumpet player goes out to do, 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 you know? Yeah, I was, I was hoping you would do the whole thing. Do the rest of it. Do, 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 Ooh, okay. Close. And then, they, and then the, the announcer goes, they're in the gates. And then the bell goes, and they're off. And then they, you know. Call the were you holders. screaming, oh, screaming at the top so of your lungs? so exciting. Like, we were at the front, too. It was really, really exciting. Cursing. Were you cursing out of just, like, dropping no. lots of F-bombs as you wave your program and swill beer? <laughs> None of that happened. I waved the program a little bit because, like, you know, I was like, come on, come on, you know, let's go. So Megan was, like, a little shocked by, you know, how loud it does get towards the end of the race because you're really rooting. And then, you know, I didn't do this, but, you know, how most people just throw their tickets on the ground because they lost I lost, but I put my ticket in my purse. Um, my husband didn't seem that excited to be there either. So I don't know. I had a wonderful why were, day. Why were you there? Like, how did this come about oh. to the point that you were going to cancel 
plans that you already have. Well, so my daughter. so as you know, my father was a thoroughbred horse trainer, and my sister was his assistant trainer. And unfortunately, he passed away very suddenly and at a young age, at sixty six. So when he died, my mother had a judgy Joyce sold everything of his, you know. So my sister really wasn't able to be a trainer anymore and but her partner is an assistant trainer slash groom so he had a horse in one of the races so that's what brought us there Mm. did you wear a giant hat i did i don't have hats i the only hat i have is a yankees baseball cap i don't i'm not a hat person i feel like it it hurts the bangs that i have the side sweep Um, but i wore a nice dress it was it was a really really nice day no but i feel like if you're gonna go do the horse thing and play the ponies, it's famous. I know, like, it's not the Kentucky Derby, wherever this was. Yeah, that's when they do that. They don't do it on You weren't at Churchill Downs, but I feel like just for the whole show, right, for Instagram or for photos, you would want to wear a gigantic hat, very elaborate, big flowing things, maybe some, I don't know, feathers, some exotic feathers. You would get a mint julep, maybe. They were selling them. In between all of your beer. I didn't have any beer. Yeah. Allegedly. And so you ended up losing. How many races did you bet on? A lot? Uh, we bet on the first, second, and third race. We lost okay. all, at all. all Judgy Joyce was there, too. She doesn't bet, though. Smart. That's a smart move. Did she enjoy herself? Um, she enjoyed herself because she was with her lovely daughters. But my mom was never big on horses or horse racing, which was problematic since we lived on a horse farm and my father's whole career was horse training. So did they let you anywhere near these ponies, given yes. your history? Yes. Yes. We That's were very, very disconcerting. Yep. We got right into the paddock. I mean, obviously, you're Are not... they all still alive. Can we get anyone to confirm? <laughs> like, can we get like a a wellness check on all of these ponies? Proof of life. It was sad. One of the horses um, hurt its leg and like it went down. So like the ambulance had to go. It was very sad. But I was like, oh, you know what's going to happen next to that horse? Ain't going to be around much Did you longer. volunteer? I didn't. <laughs> like, come over here, glue stick. Right? And you just rack the shotgun. No, I really enjoyed it so much so. I know I brought this up last year. I would like to buy a horse. I really, and I truly mean this, I would like to invest in a horse, and I would like my sister to train the horse. And I think, like, picture the story that we could tell. And when we get to the derby, you know, like, when they do the behind the scenes, it's like the two sisters that came together and finished their father's dream, and we win the derby. Do you have any concept of how unlikely that is? Uh, yeah, but a girl can dream, right? Yeah, but there's a difference between dreaming and spending, or excuse me, investing a lot of money into this whole realm, into a horse, into the training, into the the crew. The I guess you have to get a, a jockey, a trainer, all of that, right? I mean, it's a lot of money. Well, that that's the thing. My sister would offset that cost because she would be handling all of that. Um, it's still a lot of money. Vet bills, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So, How much does buying a really high-end, high-performing horse cost? Oh, I mean, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars if you wanted to. But but we can go to the sale in Kentucky and get a baby for like 5000 You never know. That could be the next Kentucky Derby winner. That's what's so crazy. You just never know. It could just be, you know, the next glue stick. Oh, it goes nowhere, would... and that's... That's thousands of dollars, Christine. It just doesn't seem like a very good. But what if Glenn can win us thousands of dollars? What if you win the lottery tomorrow? I mean, I could. I could, but I think I have. What if you go to Times Square 
in a hot dog costume, because you hate that, and someone is so delighted by your charms and your good humor that they write you a check for $10 million just for you being you. It could happen. Another thing that people do when they invest in horses is they get a group together of investors. Do you see where I'm going with this? I hope not. We can all come in like a partnership. And then, like, we'll create the name of the partnership. We'll make it like a business. And then we start with Glenn. And then we work our way to, you know, what? How it could be a lot of horses. Sorry, who's who's Glenn? Glenn's Glenn going to be the, the horse. You want to name the first horse, Glenn? Yeah. Okay. One N or two? Two. Two Ns. Okay. Um, so I'm out, but you can maybe talk to Wyatt. I don't know Wyatt could perhaps invest some of his hard-earned money into your horse scheme because they all work out very well. All of your various get-rich-quick ideas have obviously gotten you very rich. And so I think he'd be crazy to pass by this golden opportunity. I think you're going to miss out. And it's not just about getting rich. It's the it's the the group, you know, we can go to different tracks. Like, what? we can go all over the country. Who knows where Glenn could take us? We could go to Dubai. You know they race in Dubai? We could go to Dubai. We could go to London. Just hearing ching 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 all of these ideas. I'll still work on this for a little bit. I mean, I have time because when I told my husband, I'm like, well, we have the money. I can invest some of it. He, I think he said today he was calling to, like, deposit all the money <laughs> into, into the group he wanted to invest in before I get my hands on it. Oh, I think he should absolutely, like, do the bank equivalent of changing the locks. <laughs> you cannot get anywhere near any of that money because bad, irresponsible decisions inevitably will be made. What does Judgey Joyce or your sister think? Are they all excited about this, or is this a one-pony rodeo? No, my sister is all in because she she always wanted to be a trainer. passion. Yeah. Uh, Joyce, on the other hand, no bueno. She literally said at lunch, get real, Chris. It's not going to happen. She sounds wise. Not betting at the track. You lost. She didn't. She's telling you not to do this crazy thing. I think I'm on Team Judgy Joyce again. Uh, before we go, we're almost up on a break, but let's just say I'm, I'm getting amped up, Christine, for special report. I'm going on the panel tonight with Brett Baer, and, it, you know, it's Monday, and so maybe I'm dragging a little bit. Can you just help motivate me, get a little pep in my step by just once again doing the, uh, the trumpet song for me here? I will, but I have a question for you. If you don't want to invest, could you do me a favor? Could you? Brett seems to like sports. Maybe that's something that he would be interested in. Oh, yeah, that's great. You know what? I'll ask him on the air. That's appropriate and definitely, definitely not something that will get me banned from that show forever. Okay, you ready? And they're off. It was better. It was better than the last one. And they're off. That's a. I think. And and they're off for all the listeners scattering, never to return. After that, we are a very serious program. We deal with serious issues here. And then there's the home stretch. Mm. Well, hope you enjoyed that one, America. Back here tomorrow on the radio show, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, podcast free of charge. Special report coming up. I'm obviously ready to rock now that I just got motivated there by Christine. That's around 645 Eastern Time, FNC. See you there. Talk to you tomorrow. Have a great night.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.